I invite you to keep standing for a moment. Let's pray. God, these are strange days that we're living in the, in the United States today. But they're not, they're not strange to you. Um, they're not a surprise to you. And God, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi to encourage them, to, to challenge them, to help them live their best lives as Christians. And God, I pray that you would open our ears and hearts and minds, that we would receive it the same way as an encouragement, that we would be of one mind, of one heart, of one spirit, of one purpose, that we would be lifting the name of Jesus rather than our own names. Um, in a world that's trying to make the Christian church look so bad, the outside world can't do it. It's us as Christians who do. And so God, help us to hear what it is that you have for us today to understand how it is that, that we might live and every day might be more like Jesus Christ, our Savior, in his name. Amen. You may be seated. If you've got your Bible with you, Philippians 2. If you don't, how come? Yeah, we're one of those Bible teaching churches, so I would encourage you to, if you don't bring your Bible every day, bring your Bible every day. Remember when we left off last week? We left off last week and Paul had this incredible description of who Jesus is. I mean, if you want to, if you want to go and read a part of the Bible and read it out loud that just makes you feel better about being one of his followers, read that passage. I'm going to read it to you again. It's Philippians 1, starting in verse 9. Therefore God has exalted him, highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I will add the word that is not written in the Bible. Amen. May it be so. That is who Jesus is. One day, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. And, and what happens is, we read that and we say, yeah, that's great, but here's the reality. See, we want to be Jesus. We don't want to just be like Jesus. We want to be God. That's the whole nature of sin, is we don't want someone else telling us what we should or shouldn't do. And so we want to be like Jesus, yes, but more often we actually live like we want to be Jesus. One of the ways that I know that's true, because in America, and this is an awful lot of the heart of the divide that's happening right now. About a generation ago, politicians realized that if they could divide us in the church... Suddenly the Christian church couldn't stand as one. And so they started taking things that were, were, were the sole concern of Christians and religion. And they started putting them to vote and started making them laws. And so now Christians disagree with each other and we're divided on things that a generation ago we wouldn't have even been divided on. And what's happening is that in America we're legalizing things that God has told us are not okay. God has told us they're sinful. But in America, we legalize them because we want to be God. And what we need to understand is that we are not called to be Jesus. Paul is calling us to be Christ-like, not Christ. You are not called to be Jesus. Guess what? We talk about sharing your faith. We're going to talk about that, and, and uh, we're, we're going to have a really cool way of, of thinking about it in a little bit. But here's the deal. You're not going to save anyone. Your sum total of people you will save in your life in, in an eternal sense is zero. Jesus saves us. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us and in whoever we share that with that actually brings about that action. But we have the privilege of having a front row seat when we talk about Jesus. We're not called to be Jesus. We're called to grow in our likeness of Jesus, to be Christ-like, not Christ. 
We talked a lot about our call, our purpose, our mission, what it is that we do in the kingdom for God. And, you know, one of the things that Paul makes so clear is that our call, our purpose, our ministry doesn't change because of our circumstances or surroundings. And so Paul's way of addressing that is saying rejoice. And he says rejoice and give joy or be joyful. He says it over and over and over like 16 times in the book of Philippians. And it's a little book. He's serious. Those things don't change our call, our purpose, our ministry. You hear me talk about that. After the last couple of weeks, I had some very helpful feedback, and I want to share some of it with you. The first one was this. The person said, you know, for a lot of us, you talk about our ministry being in the church. What's our call? What's our purpose in the church? For a lot of us, you know, we understand our ministry to be out in the world. Amen, absolutely. I'm sorry that I didn't say that, and that was an omission that needs to be corrected. The ministry God may have called you to is in your office. Maybe in your school. It may be you spend time on the phone. It may be that you're talking to someone at a, at a checkout at, with a cashier. It, it may be anywhere. It doesn't have to just be in the church. But all of us as Christians have a ministry. We have a call. We have a purpose. That could exist in foreign countries as a missionary. It, can, it could uh, exist in your hometown. It could exist in your church. The second one is connected to it. And it was this. For a lot of people, you know, their most important ministry begins at home. If you're a parent or if you're a spouse, your most important ministry begins at home. If you're a parent of children who are in your home or, or even who are out of the house that are looking for you for advice and direction, or if you're married and you share a household with someone else, your first and most important ministry begins at home. And then from that, you take ministry out into the world. Both of those were very, very important additions to the messages the last couple of weeks. So spouses and parents, remember that your most important ministry begins before you ever leave the door. Now, go to your Bibles, Philippians 2, verse 12. With this backdrop of who Jesus is and that every knee will bow and every tongue confess, Paul starts chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 12 with the word, therefore. What Paul means when he says, therefore, he goes, now that you've heard all of this, this is what you do with it. Now, this is what you do with what you know. And there, there's the problem that so often we have in church. We hear someone go, oh, that's good stuff. That's really good stuff. You know you're in trouble if you say, I wish so-and-so would have heard it. God didn't have you, didn't have you here to hear the message for them. God heard, had you here to hear the message for you. Right? But so often it's hard to take what we hear and even what we agree with and to take it out into the world and do something. And that's what Paul's getting at. He says, therefore... Here's what you do now. My beloved, as you have always obeyed, I love Paul. Paul assumes that as Christians, we're obedient. He assumes that we're obedient. As you have always obeyed, he says. So now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We get caught up on that because we sometimes confuse that to think that working out our salvation means that we have to do a certain number of good deeds before God actually lets us into heaven. That's not the case. Work out as in strive. Work on. Realize what your salvation cost. It's free to you, but it wasn't free to Jesus. Work out with fear and trembling. Why would it be fear and trembling? Because if you have been saved by the grace of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus, just look at how close you were to an eternity in hell. Fear and trembling is recognizing where you could have gone. So work it out. Strive for it. It doesn't mean to do good deeds to earn your salvation. Your salvation has been bought and paid for by Jesus. It's a free gift, but it wasn't a gift that was free to him. 
So what we do is, in gratitude, thankfully, we intentionally spend our time growing closer to God and becoming more and more like the person of Jesus. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's nothing that we do that completely comes from us. Anything that we do that is according to God's will starts with God, passes through us, and goes back to God. So even the best thing that we do isn't to put a a check mark on our scorecard. When we do something right as a Christian, it's for God's good pleasure. It's for God's will. I had a mentor years ago who used to call that the privilege of ministry. Maybe you have the opportunity to do something that you don't feel like doing, going to visit someone you don't want to visit, taking time away to do a task that you really don't feel like taking, but God kind of nudges you and you say yes and you go do it and you realize that was the most incredible experience. Didn't even see that coming. It's called the privilege of ministry. That we, it is to will and to work for God's good pleasure. Paul knows, however, that so often... Even when we know what we're supposed to do, when that nudging from the Holy Spirit that it's easy to go, eh, eh, it's just I ate something funny, it was a burrito or lunch and it's my stomach. And, and God's telling you, you know that's me and I'm pushing you to listen to me and we say, nope, I'm not going to do it. See, Paul understands that because he goes on in verse 14, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's not easy. We're to give thanks all things. We're to rejoice. And we're to do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's not easy. I'm going to give you an example that's a little bit uh, fun and a little bit silly, but also a lot of it real. Deidre and I share our house with two puppies. So forgive the photo of me, but those are our two puppies. On the left is Luna, on the right is Brinks. They're brother and sister Mastiffs. Luna on the left is somewhere north of 190 pounds, and Brinks is the wimp of the house. He's the male that's about 150 They eat a lot of dog food, and I spend a lot of my life with a horse rake in the backyard. Right? But that doesn't make me grumble. What honestly makes me grumble about the privilege of having these two wonderful guard dogs in our home, um, which, by the way, are the biggest teddy bears you're ever going to meet. The part where I get grumbly is when these big dogs that go through so much of this food and they have this very tender stomach, and suddenly there's a grumbly in the tumbly, as Pooh used to say. And when the grumbly in the tumbly comes out the other way, and somehow it falls to me, the privilege of cleaning that stuff up. I grumble. And what I realize is, I wanted that dog. My choice. I brought him into the house. I love him. They're great dogs. I love them both. And yet I grumble when something very natural happens. And Paul says, do, think, do all things without grumbling. Do all things without grumbling. That's so easy to say and it's so hard to do. I struggle not to grumble. Now, that's an easy example because there's other ones, I'll tell you what. But I realize that if what I'm doing, everything I'm doing is, is in God's will, if it's for God's purposes, if I'm giving thanks in all circumstances, I've even learned to give thanks when my dog's up chuck. Because it means I've got this great dog. And then if I'm following Paul's advice and I'm giving thanks in all circumstances and I have joy because God will use everything to accomplish his purpose, even something like that, which just turned into a sermon illustration, I think I have no reason in the world to grumble. Well, why in the world would we grumble and dispute? I'll tell you why we grumble and dispute, because we want to be God and we get upset when things don't go our own way. Am I right? 
There's mean people in the world. There's cruel people in the world. There's thoughtless people in the world. There's people that say and do things that are absolutely unkind and unnecessary, and we should never have to bear the brunt of them. And when they do, we grumble, don't we? And yet we know full well those people are out there. And if we're going to be completely honest, probably at some time or another, we've actually engaged in the same kind of behavior against someone else. And yet Paul says, don't grumble or dispute. So we're living in this world today, in this nation, it's hard not to grumble. I don't care where your politics are. It's hard not to grumble. It's hard not to grumble when we don't know what's coming. It's hard not to grumble when we don't know what's happening. It's hard not to grumble when we don't know who or what to believe. It's hard not to grumble when we don't know what's real news or fake news or made-up news or absolutely baloney news. It's hard not to grumble through all of that. But here's what I want to say to you. God is in control. And even though our natural reaction might be to grumble and to give up because it all seems so hopeless, don't give up. Paul would say, keep fighting the good fight, keep striving, keep continuing to be more like Jesus. God's got it in his hands. You know, here's, here's the reality that I've come to. I can't change anything that happens in Washington. Oh, I wish I could. But I can't change anything, but I can pray about it. And I can influence and I can be a part of changing for the name of Jesus the situation around me. And, and so don't grumble. Don't give up. Carry light into the darkness. See, see, we know the truth. We know the truth of God's love. Instead of being afraid and grumbling, let's just rejoice and let's give thanks in all things. And it's amazing how that simple act changes our attitude and our perspective. When we set our sights on Jesus, we see more of Jesus and more or less of what we were complaining about. So as far as complaining goes, Paul kind of won that race hands down. There's, there's really no question about that. Paul was the guy who had something to complain about. If you ask me through history, who would be the two people who had the most reason to complain? I would say Jesus of Nazareth and Paul. Because neither one of them ever stood in their own defense. They could have. Neither one of them ever did. Once Paul was saved, once Paul was saved, because he wasn't such a good guy before that, once Paul was saved, people didn't treat him very well. But he never stood in his own defense. He didn't grumble. He didn't complain. In fact, he tells us to do what he did, and that's to rejoice and look for joy in the situation. I want to read to you Paul's own description of why it is that he might have a right to grumble. It's in 2 Corinthians 11. It starts in verse 23. He asks, are they servants of Christ? Because he's having this conversation about who these people are and who's the better, uh, who's the better religious person. He says, are they servants of Christ? He said, I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. This is the early part of his description, folks. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes less one. That's his own people. That's 39 times he was whipped. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, and I will add, left outside the city for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles. You feel like grumbling? No. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. It's exhausting to read this. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. 
And yet he goes on and he says, if, you know, if there's a weakness in me, I'm going to brag about the weakness because it's God at work in me. Paul could have complained and grumbled better than anybody else out there, and he never did. He said, rejoice and then look for the joy. And I think, I think what, what an incredible message that is to me and, and to us. And why do we do that? Why do we not grumble? Why do we look for joy? Why do we try to find the best in the circumstances of where God might be at work? He tells us in verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. When the Israelites were traveling north to the promised land after being freed from slavery in Egypt, Deuteronomy talks about them as being a crooked and twisted generation. It's interesting what grumbling does to us. I'm going to put up a map here. And maybe you've seen this, maybe you haven't. If you've been to Israel, it's a pretty interesting graphic here. That little blue thing in the middle is the nation of Israel in its entirety in the midst of the U.S. to scale. That's the nation of Israel. It's about the size of the state of New Jersey. Okay? If you put it to the state of Minnesota, it would go pretty much just about to the north and almost to the south. And as skinny as can be, it would run basically from the western metro to St. Cloud. That's the nation of Israel. This is what grumbling does for us. The nation of Israel, three million people. Twin Cities Metro, a little over three million people. They're released from slavery in Egypt, and they begin to walk to the promised land. The Bible says it wasn't for a month or a year. It was for 40 years they wandered in the wilderness. And you know why they wandered? Because they complained. Didn't like the food, didn't like the heat, didn't like the accommodations. The hotels weren't up to what they were after. Some of them had to walk more than they wanted to. Uber apparently wasn't showing up on time. Three million people. You look at that map and you see that area, and Israel is right north there of of Egypt. Once they cross the water, they're home free. Three million people. The number of people in the Twin Cities metro area walking around an area that's barely as wide as what it takes to to confine them right now. Their grumbling had them spending 40 years complaining to God, literally walking in circles. And I think it it maybe took to 10 years. I don't know, that's generous. But once you think about the 10th year, the leader of the pack would have looped around to the tail end of the pack who hadn't broken camp yet and say, hey, aren't you Ed's brother? Didn't we start this thing out in Egypt together? 40 years. They complained, and I wonder, what kind of tailspins does our grumbling and complaining put us into? To where we lose sight of the promised land completely, and all that we pay attention to is the grumbling and complaining. There's no joy in that. And Paul is saying the reason, the reason that we want to rejoice is so we don't get caught up in all the grumbling. And he goes on and he says, among whom you, there's this quicker generation, Crooked generation, certainly we understand that in America, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Old Testament talks about that, and it uses the wording, shine as stars in the sky. Have you thought of yourself as a light in the darkness? See, that's, that's why Paul says we have joy. 
Because we have a light in us that the world that is dying and that is divided and separated from God does not have. That we are to be a light in the world. Why do we not grumble? Why do we not complain? Why do we look for joy in everything? Because we're called to be a light in the world. You know, it's interesting. Uh, at Christmas time, I use the example in the Christmas message. Remember those two planets that started getting closer together and people called it the Christmas star? I believe it was Jupiter and Saturn. They weren't stars at all. They were planets. But when they got together, people from all over the place saw hope in that light in the sky. But here's what was interesting. Those planets, like you and I, emit no light. They emit no light. And yet there was this incredible brightness in the sky, if you were able to see it in an area that didn't have clouds that last night. But really what those planets were doing was reflecting the light of the sun. It wasn't their light at all. They were reflecting the light of the sun. When, we're talk, when Paul talks about us being the light of the world, we reflect the light of the Son of God. Get that? You shine as a light in the world. What did those planets do? They lit up the night sky. What does a Christian shine in the light of Jesus do in the world? It lights up the darkness that has infiltrated the world. And Paul says, why do we rejoice? We rejoice... Because of Jesus, we are a light in the world. In a dark and desperate and divided and dying world, we get to be lights. Matthew says, in the same way, let your light shine before others, that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Why? Holding fast to the word of life. How do we hold fast to the word of life? It's the good news of the gospel. It's Jesus. It's not about us at all. That's what we hang on to. Tim Paul goes on, and it, it's kind of cool because he uses the phrase rejoice. Uh, I'm glad and rejoice. Um, be glad and rejoice. Uh, let's see. Those who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, rejoice. And then he talks about Epaphroditus. He's with Timothy and Epaphroditus. It's cool that he mentions Epaphroditus because he's actually from Philippi. Say that one three times. Epaphroditus. Believe me, I practiced. Epaphroditus is from Philippi, and he was really sick, and the people back in Philippi had heard that this guy that was one of their own that was traveling, Paul, might have died. And Paul's saying, nope, he's gotten better, he's healthy, I'm going to send him back as an encouragement to you, Uh, thanks for letting me work with him. Paul was great at encouraging the churches, but Paul was also great at something else. Paul was great at lifting up other people. Paul knew that it, was, it didn't take anything away from his name to elevate the name of someone else. And, and we get so caught up in our world that if we give someone else a compliment, it somehow might take away the shine of the sparkle from me. You know the phrase we have around here, well, I would have said something, but I didn't want her to get a big head. Really? You give that many compliments? Well, he's lifting up the name of Timothy and Epaphroditus as partners with him in ministry. And he goes on and he says, you know, I want to send him back because he's been longing for all of you because he's been distressed because you heard that he was ill and he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him. And he said, so I'm going to send him back to you so that you may rejoice, so that you may receive him in the Lord with joy. What Paul is doing is encouraging the people and saying, you know what? You are not called to be lights on your own. There are other lights out there. And it isn't just me who's in jail. And Paul's saying, I'm shining my brightest in jail right now because I've got a guard who's with me 24 hours a day. Guess what I do? I talk about Jesus. He's saying, Timothy and Epaphroditus, they're lights along with you. And it can feel in our world, because it is so easy to get covered by the darkness, to feel like we don't even have the light anymore. And so realize, it isn't the light that you generate, it is Jesus in us. We are reflecting the light of the Son of God. Right? So here's what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to invite people to come forward right now, and we're going to pass out a pen. And I actually, no, I got one. Uh, we're going to pass out a pen. But here's what the really cool thing. Uh, it's got a stylus on the bottom. It's got the Open Door logo on the side. And it's got another feature on the end, which I'll ask you to hold off on as soon as you figure it out, if you would, please. Here's the deal. Paul knew that he didn't work alone. Paul knew that he had a major responsibility in spreading the good news of the gospel of Jesus and that he had an opportunity to be the light of the gospel, even in the darkest places. And I have to believe that the inner cell chained to a guard of a Roman prison was one of the darkest places in the world. But to Paul, it shined with the light of Jesus because Paul reflected the light of Jesus. He didn't work alone and he knew that. He knew that Timothy and Epaphroditus were helping to shine the light of the gospel of Jesus all over the place. Paul actually speaked well of other preachers who were running him down, who were gossiping and saying horrible things about him. And he said, you know what? Their motives aren't so good, but they're still preaching Jesus. That's what mattered. Not Paul's name, but the name of Jesus. And as Christians, we get so concerned about, well, they're not saying good things about me. And we get caught up grumbling. Remember, grumbling caused the Israelites to wander for 40 years. How long is your grumbling going to cause you to wander away from Jesus? Think about it, because it's real. We're called to be a light in the darkness. See, Paul isn't worried about his name, and we shouldn't be worried about our name either. We should be concerned about encouraging and building up other believers, those who are new in the faith or those who may be getting tired in the faith. And Paul remembers that Paul reminds us that we're not alone either. So here's the deal. I'm going to ask you to turn off the lights up here. Here's our example this morning. You've heard me say this before, but I'm going to say it again with some emphasis today. I am but one voice in the darkness of the world that is around me. I am here right now with a whole lot more voices that God is going to send out into the darkness of the world that's around you. My one, oh, see, some of you cheated. You've already turned on the top of it. My one voice does that much good. My one voice makes that much of a difference for the gospel of Jesus in the world. Why am I so passionate about this place teaching the truth of God's word? Because the truth of God's word can multiply when believers are willing to share it with other people. So turn off the lights, would you, Cindy? Turn on your pens. What happens when we take that seriously? Yeah, it's just a little light on a little pen, but think about the example that is. What happens if we were the church that took what we learned on Sunday morning and carried it with us into the world and realized that our call, our purpose, our ministry from God, every one of us, was to carry the light of the good news of Jesus to a dark and dying world? Suddenly, my one light is multiplied however many times here. And then you know what? When you go out and you start sharing and you start talking... You start seeing the same result that Paul and Timothy, Barnabas and Epaphroditus had. It's called multiplication. One light that turns into all these lights that begins to change the world around us. You are called to be a light in the darkness. You're called to be the light of the good news of the gospel. That doesn't mean you have to have all the answers. You know what? It doesn't even mean you always have to like what happens. But what the Bible says is that we give thanks in all things and in all circumstances. That we rejoice knowing that God can redeem and make something absolutely beautiful out of the darkness that maybe even is us. Something like a light in the world. So my challenge for you today is when you walk out of here, you can give your pen away. You can use it as an example. You can use it to remind you. 
But here's what I would hope. I would hope that we as a church take Paul's words seriously and we say, you know what, we might have our personal differences. We might not like how this person does that or this person does that or we might not like how that ministry is going. But you know what? The Bible calls us to be of one mind, of one purpose, of one spirit, united in our faith, in God's Holy Spirit, because of what Jesus has done for us. Take that light out into the world, shine it, and realize that you may be the only light that someone who is dying in darkness without Jesus ever sees. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of Paul's writings. Thank you for the idea of being a light in the darkness. God, I really do pray that we would be that kind of church, the kind of church that doesn't fall to the division that's taking over America, the kind of church that doesn't give in to Satan who is battling you in every way that he can, and he's dividing believer from believer just like he's dividing non-believer and and causing politics to separate us and, and everything else that's going on out there. Our only hope, truly our only hope, is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ who gave his life for us in his death and resurrection that we would know salvation and we would have the opportunity to work that out in fear and trembling, realizing how close we were to an eternity separated from you. But now we've got the opportunity, the the invitation from you to take the light that is now in us, that is Jesus Christ, our Savior, and bring it out into a world that is living in darkness, that is dying because they're separate from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, you know what? You have the unique privilege of going into the world and shining the light of Jesus with people who do not know him. And if you dare to do that and they say no, please understand. And this took me a while to realize. They're not saying no to you. They're saying no to Jesus. What we're invited to do is to tell them who he is and what it is that he's done for us. Right? 